You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, December 20th, 2017, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Kara Santamaria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Welcome to winter. Yes, winter <laughs> has come. Finally. Even to L.A. Is that right? Yeah, it was like, the high today was like 55 degrees. How could that be with all the poor thing? With all the fires and everything? That's amazing. I mean, I would say I had to wear a coat, but I actually haven't left my house yet today. (laughs) 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 So this is our last regular episode of the year, 2017. Oh my gosh, so fast. Crazy. Uh, Perception of time, just, I don't know, it it, it compresses when you get older each year, I think. You guys, I got a Facebook um, flashback. You know, they do those photos it's like one year ago today, two years ago today of us uh, in the um, in those loungy seats seeing the last big Star Wars movie. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Right. Yeah. When would that right. have been? Two, two years already? Two years ago. Jeez. That was two years, yeah. Oh, my that gosh. That was fun. We saw that the Force Awakens. That is so hard to believe. Force we did Awakens. see The Last Jedi, everyone but Kara. So. Yeah, I'm seeing it next yeah, week, so don't I ruin it. I saw it twice. La, la, la. Well, we want to ruin it. talk about it, but just wanted to mention, so Alpha Quadrant 6 has an uh, in-depth review on our Facebook page and on the Skeptics Guide YouTube channel. So if you want to watch an hour-long review of the movie, <laughs> yeah. there it is. That was a fun review. Yeah, you can go to fa- Facebook.com forward slash Alpha Quadrant, the number six. It was yeah. passionate. Yeah, and the next next week will be our year in review show, which we will have already recorded when this mm-hmm. goes up. Yeah. And then we will live stream that. But if you want to watch that one, you'll it'll obviously it's in the feed as a podcast, but it'll also be on our face on the SGU Facebook page as a video if you want to watch it. And it's live streaming, right? So that's Friday, December twenty is that right? Twenty third? Twenty second, which is 22nd. The day before <laughs> this goes up. So yeah, it's too late. 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Oh, I see. That's why you didn't plug it. Smart oh, right. host. He's a smart host. <laughs> yeah, it's like a so time. if you also have a time machine, you can catch us live on Friday evening, the 27th. Apparently, I can't even give the right date. So I don't know. I didn't leave my house today. Oh, Kara. Yes. What is the last what's the word of the year? Oh, you guys, that's so sad. I kind of feel like I should have picked a better one. No, this is a good one. I like it. It's I've enjoyed this series tremendously. Cara, oh, I'm so way. glad. Thank you. This one is accretion. Accretion is a noun, which refers to the process of building up, adding on, or growing by accumulating matter, like sediment carried by water. So in geological terms, you know, land is actually oftentimes built up um, in deltas and silty areas. Alluvia by methods of accretion. And also, as we often use the term on the Skeptic's Guide, it's a celestial object that's building up by the gravitational accumulation of interstellar material. Uh, we usually accretion hear disc. the word, yep, exactly, mm-hmm. Bob, uh, with regards to an accretion disk, which is literally that. It's a disk that surrounds a celestial object, usually a star, but not always. It could be a dead star, but um, typically a star. And that disk is made up of dust and particles that through gravity and friction get hotter and clumpier as they accumulate and move in towards the object. They give off radiation because they are so hot. And depending on how hot and how big they are, the radiation might be in different um, parts of the spectrum. Um, And often the cool thing is that they eject ionized matter in the form of jets. Um, We see that in many, many an artist conception. I even found out that there's a whole field dedicated to understanding the oscillations of accretion disks. Do you guys know what it's called? The oscillation of accretion disks? No. Mm -hmm. 
It's not what you would expect. Because they called, like pulsate with gravity. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but it's called disco seismology. I love oh, it. I like that. Yeah. Oh, wow. I want it to be called accretionology. It would have worked better for this. What's no, the word? of course. Yeah. Disco yeah. seismology makes it sound like what happens on the dance floor. Or something I know, exactly. right? It's so great. <laughs> <laughs> so, I know. It's so good. Um, <laughs> the verb form of the word accretion is obviously accrete, although weirdly, the verb form is a hundred years younger than the noun. The noun came first. Mm. And it took them a hundred years to figure out to say accrete. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, adjective uh, forms, if you've heard them in text or in uh, conversation, are accretive and accretionary. Um, I don't want to dive too Ooh. deep into the etymology, um, but basically one thing that I found that's interesting, and it obviously makes sense once you think about it, is that the word accrue has similar roots, although um, they're actually both from original Latin forms that don't start with A-C-C. They start A-D-C. So that ad portion at the beginning means to, and then my Latin is terrible, but crescere uh, ad crescere would be to grow, and that eventually kind of morphed into the word we now know that as accretion. Yeah, it, does it have a similar to, to what about like secretion? What's the similarity there? Oh, that would be the grow part. Yeah, yeah, the crete part. Yeah, but the ad part at the beginning or the uck part at the beginning is just to do something. So yeah, you see that a lot in in the kind of prefixes of verbs. But yeah, definitely secretion. And what about the Isle of Crete? I don't think that's related. Oh, I thought that was <laughs> unfortunately. Oh. What about the hair so. growth accretion formula? The hair growth oh, accretion, accretion formula. Remember that. What wrong. is that? You know what I always was formula? You don't know that? Do you no. guys remember that comb that you just comb your hair with and it, it, it like colors your hair because it's in the comb? All right. Well, let's get started with the news items, guys. This one is, is sort of good news, but I don't know. Um, this has to do with the FDA regulation of homeopathy. This is a story we've been following for over two years, two and a half years. It'll be three years in April. So if you recall... April 2015, so we get coming up on three years ago, the FDA announced that they were reevaluating their regulation of homeopathy and they were accepting public comment, which science-based medicine enthusiastically gave our public opinion about, mm -hmm. about how they should regulate homeopathy. The FTC did a similar thing and FTC already came up with their revised regulations. So now the FDA finally has come out with their new guidelines for how they are going to regulate homeopathy. So let me get you up to speed first on a little bit of the background. So homeopathy, homeopathic products, this is not the practice of homeopathy, but this is homeopathic products, right? Mm -hmm. um, they are actually designated as drugs according to the FDA, the Food and Drug Act of 1938. The uh, pharmacopoeia, the homeopathic pharmacopoeia was included as a list of drugs that are regulated by the FDA. Just grandfathered in, just slipped in, right? Yeah, it was a Royal Copeland who was a senator from New York at the time and who was a practicing homeopath pushed that through. He lost my vote. Yeah, so, <laughs> uh, so since then, um, they essentially all homeopathic products have been – because it included the – homeopathic pharmacopoeia and its supplements. So they just have to say, oh, here's a new one, you know, and it gets automatically on the list. Now, they are drugs, which means the FDA has the full authority to regulate them like any other drug. They just chose not to. And they chose not to because it was such a small market. It was teeny tiny. It was a specialty market. It was mainly 
um, these products were used by homeopathic physicians or homeopaths. And so they figured this wasn't worth their time and effort. So they just, they just punted to the industry itself to regulate itself. But then they recognized that in the last 20 years or so, homeopathic products have grown to a $3 billion industry in the United States. Mm-hmm. And they said, you know what? Maybe it's no longer you know, small enough to fly below the you radar. Think? Yeah, maybe we need to rethink. And then also the other the other trigger for this was not just that it's in the size of the industry has grown so much, but they increasingly have had to take individual action against products marketed as homeopathic because they were they were poisoning yeah. kids or poisoning people. They actually contained actual ingredients. And so what they also realized is that um, companies were labeling products as homeopathic to make an end run around FDA yeah. uh, regulation. Sure. It's a huge loophole. So they said, okay, we have to revamp what we're doing here. Now they come out with their guidelines. So again, these are all internal FDA guidelines to how they're going to behave. This is not legislation. This is not a law, a mandate or anything. This is just the FDA saying, this is what we're going to do. The The new guidelines essentially have two components to them. One component is to say that they are going to start regulating homeopathic products as drugs. They're essentially putting the industry on notice that they are no longer going to just let the industry regulate themselves. Sure. So that sounds really good on paper. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that sounds reasonable. The second part of it is that they are going to prioritize products that are the most risky. They're going to take a risk risk-based approach to prioritizing which products they are going to focus their attention on. And this is their list of criteria for what they consider to be the more risky products. Products with reported safety concerns, products that contain or claim to contain actual ingredients, products for routes of administration other than oral or topical, so if it's injectable or whatever, they get more interested in that, Products intended to be used for the prevention or treatment of serious and or life-threatening diseases or conditions. So if you say this is for cancer, they're going to take more interest in it as well. Mm-hmm. Products for vulnerable populations, so children, the elderly, elderly. etc. And products that do not meet standards of quality, strength, or purity as required under the law. So just, you know, you're not manufacturing it well. That's their list of priority. Not bad. Yeah, so that, that all sounds reasonable. Again, this way, this could be good news. I just don't know. The question is, how are they going to enforce these new guidelines? And I sort of came up with my maximally optimistic view and my maximally pessimistic view. Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, the maximally optimistic view is that they are going to gut the homeopathic product industry and they're just basically putting them on notice. They're, they're going to maybe start with the riskiest products first, but by saying we're going to start regulating homeopathic products like drugs, essentially if they actually did that, if they actually do what they say they're going to do, no homeopathic product is going to survive that. Nope. Now, here's some, some uh, further out. clarification. If you look at the actual proposed guidelines, there's one paragraph that's very legalese and has a lot of wonky references to specific – under Section 505A of the FD&C Act 21 USC 35 – whatever. So there's a lot of that <laughs> kind of stuff going on. Um, but what it basically says is that uh, drugs can get on the market one of two ways. Either you get FDA approval – FDA approval requires hundreds of millions of dollars, 
you know, the the full batch of research showing that it's safe and effective, right? Real science, mm-hmm. right? Or you Black need, market. Or no, or you need to be you could be marketed as an over-the-counter drug if it is determined to be grass slash E. That means so that's G R A S slash E. The G R A S standard is marijuana. They sell no, marijuana now. Generally, <laughs> generally regarded as safe, and then the added the E is safe and effective. So generally regarded as safe and effective by a consensus of expert scientific opinion. Right? So what is that like a Flintstone chewable vitamin? Is yeah, exactly. Like, okay. Exactly. Or aspirin or aspirin. Whatever. Yeah, generally regarded as safe and effective. And effective. That's the key and letter yeah. right there. That exactly because e yeah, the E is critical there. Absolutely. <laughs> Let's help them define effective. <laughs> let us. They help say. Them. They say in their own. Their own document that no FD, no homeopathic product is either FDA approved or, or yeah, fit, right. uh, gr- or generally regarded as safe and effective. Yeah. So nothing okay. currently meets these guidelines. Wow. So will they enforce it? Well, that's the question. The question is. So it all sounds good on paper. The question is, how are they going to enforce it? So the maximally optimistic view is this is the death knell for the homeopathic product industry. The maximally pessimistic view is that under these guidelines, they are going to send strongly worded letters warning companies when they are violating the regulations and essentially make them change their marketing so that they no longer fit into the high risk category. In other words, stop mentioning that, stop claiming it's going to cure cancer, you know? Yeah. yeah. But, but they're not going to go after the bulk of the market, which is like cold remedies, because that's like not considered a vulnerable, like cold remedies for adults, like that would be, can not fit any of the criteria for high risk. But that's also a huge part of the market of homeopathic products. So it could have a very little effect if they take that sort of we're going to send warning letters and and get and then nibble around the edges of the most egregious you know yeah. risky behavior or it could be yeah if we're going to actually make them show efficacy you know even at the lower standard of the generally regarded as safe and effective there isn't a single homeopathic product that will get through that standard yeah, yeah. by definition so they, they will fall <laughs> like dominoes yeah so I you think know, you're being very optimistic, Steve. As I said, that, that's the maximally that optimistic perspective. I think the reality <laughs> yeah, right. is going to be somewhere in between. Sure. And we right. just have to wait and see where along that spectrum from heroic to pathetic, as I characterize it, that they will fall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We will they'll, see. They'll probably – yeah, Steve, could you stop saying guidelines? Because every time you say that, I think the code is more what you call guidelines. <laughs> guidelines. It's more of a guideline. I swear. Every time you say guidelines, that's what I think. <laughs> oh, my God. I, 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 I'm trying not to be a cynic with this, but like my first comment is, yeah, welcome to the party, guys. Like seriously, what could have possibly taken this long? What, you know, this, yeah. this homeopathy is like the exact reason why this organization exists, mm-hmm. and they've done so yeah. little to it. So, you know, yeah, I want to see even a, a, an inch of going in the direction that you're saying, Steve. But I, I just have to wait and see because I don't have any faith. I mean, so this is going to be at least better than it was before, right? So I think there's no way at this least. could be worse or be. No, no benefit whatsoever because they're saying, yep, they're actual drugs. We're going to regulate them that way. They have to meet one of these standards and we're going to go after the high risk ones first. I, I, mm-hmm. I can't imagine how this won't be a step in the right direction. Right. And you know they're excreting a brick. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they have their top lawyers on it, I'm sure. Now, the, what's what the okay? So the maximally, maximally pessimistic view is that the homeopathic industry is going to unleash their lobbyists, and then Congress is going to respond oh, by passing new no. legislation protecting <laughs> them from the FDA. That's the worst case scenario that there'll be a backlash against the FDA, and then regulation will trump their guidelines. Do we so, know wow. like how big and how strong that lobby is compared to other powerful it's lobbies? It's a three in this billion dollar industry. By definition, yeah. it's powerful because it has three billion dollars. Right? You, that's the problem with all <sighs> of this: is that you make money by selling selling snake oil, and then you use the money you make selling snake oil to get the laws passed to make it easier to sell snake oil. That yeah. has been happening for a hundred years. That's what that's what's been happening. So. There is a 90-day, starting December 18th, a 90-day public um, comment period on their proposed guidelines. So go to the FDA website and leave your comments. Let them know that you want science-based regulations. You want the FDA to do their freaking job. Well, you can't use that phrase, science-based. Yeah, we'll get there. (laughs) 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 We will use it, damn it. We use a science. We want science-based regulations to protect the public from fraud, because that's what this is. And then, if you know, if this does get to be to the legislative level, then we will absolutely have to mobilize at that point in time. I don't know that we will have the power to stand up to a massive industry that's going to lobby on its own behalf. But damn, we got to do everything we can. We've been working towards this for years, you know, trying to get homeopathy against the ropes. It's the lowest hanging fruit when it comes to alternative medicine. It's the most vulnerable because it is the most obviously silly nonsense. It's it's witch's brew. It's magical potions. It's 100% fraud. If we can't take this out, we can't take anything out. And we are making huge progress, but we got to keep the pressure up. We cannot, cannot back off. And we have to keep our eye on the ball and, and anticipate what the industry is going to do to save itself. It's not going to go quietly with a whimper. It's not. The FDA is basically holding a knife to its throat. It's going to yeah. go nuts. Yeah. But we got to go nuts too. We have to be there and say, this is what we want. You know, this is your job and and we're going to hold you to it. And they they do listen to public opinion. And believe me, the other side is very vocal. We have to be more vocal. Absolutely. So there's your call to action. Go to the FDA, make your voice heard. Uh, but so this this is a good thing. It could be a very good thing, but we have to, but we have to see and we, we have to be vigilant. All right. Let's move on. Bob. Uh, you and Evan are actually going to both cover this, but Bob, you're going to start. You're going to tell us about these newly released Pentagon UFO videos. UFOs are back in the news. I know. That's <laughs> are they ever out of school? Big, big UFO news this week. Uh, well, big for a phenomena that doesn't really exist. Um, <laughs> a Pentagon black budget or partially black budget program was revealed recently that has spent millions of dollars searching for anomalous aircraft. Plus, there were bonus videos from sophisticated military jets. So that's the, probably the, the coolest part of this, I think. Um, so, okay, where do we, where do we even start with this one? Um, probably start with, uh, Luis Elizondo, who's primarily the reason why this is in the news. He's, uh, was a recently retired, um, director of a Pentagon program, uh, Department of Defense called the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. They spent about $22 million, uh, American dollars between uh, 2007 and 2012, collecting and analyzing details on anomalous aerospace threats 
Uh, these activities ranged from apparently uh, not only possible extraterrestrial craft, but also advanced aircraft from non-allies um, and even commercial drones. So it wasn't it wasn't specifically focused on um, extraterrestrial crafts. Crafts. I hate saying UFOs because it's just a horrible initialism. So the real meat, though, are are the videos that everyone's seeing and uh, talking about. And these were uh, apparently cleared by the government for public release. So uh, one of them uh, was comes from 2004 and was vetted and was vetted by the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. They actually, and that's why that's also when the, these videos or this video was in the news because this this project um, actually vetted this as well. So in it, you have uh, uh, the U.S. Navy pilot commander David uh, Fravor. Fravor. So he essentially in 2004 he was called away from a training exercise to check out some anomalous aircraft that had been descending from 80,000 feet to 20,000 feet um, and disappearing. Now, this apparently was happening for like a couple of weeks, uh, which is which is kind of odd. I mean, why they waited two weeks before they uh, tried to get some uh, some eyes on the scene. So, But when he arrived, uh, Fervor said that he uh, saw what looked like a white tic-tac about the same size as a hornet that he was flying, 40 feet long with no wings, just hanging close to the water. Um, he continued, as I get closer, as my nose is starting to pull back up, it accelerates and it's gone faster than I've ever seen anything in my life. And then it's this, some of the reports are kind of mixed up as to, you know, who, what, when and where, but apparently another crew took some video as well. When Fravor was l- landing on the Nimitz, another crew left and they took some video. Although some of the other videos weren't necessarily from the same time period. I know it's a little confused, but it, in that other video, you can hear commentary such as, uh, some, somebody saying, my gosh. Uh, they were clearly impressed and surprised by what they were seeing. Someone says you could see a fleet of them. The video, though, of course, never shows a fleet of anything. Mm-hmm. It's, someone said it's going against the wind, which is actually an important observation. Um, if that is, is in fact, uh, if that in fact was the case, another one, another guy says, uh, it's rotating, which is also an interesting thing to observe in that, in that specific scenario. When Favor, uh, got back to the Nimitz, he said it really what well, he didn't discuss it much, uh, primarily because of the ribbing, uh, that he would have gotten from people and the, the ribbing that he did get, um, for being involved in such a thing. But for, he now says the following though. He says that he is certain about one thing. It was a real object. It exists and I saw it. Um, and he also describes it as something not from the earth. So, uh, yeah. So there's all that. He also feels compelled to say things like, I don't think I was a nut job as an officer in the Navy. I wasn't drunk. I don't do drugs. I got a good night's rest. It was a clear day. So, um, so I, I actually believe him about that specifically about his state of mind, but that's almost irrelevant in my mind. You know, people are also fond of saying similar things like that the observer was a trained professional, you know, in an attempt to boost the credibility of the person, but it's, but it's not about training. It really isn't. You know, you can't train yourself to be immune to one of the classic ways that these, this thing can go wrong, such as optical illusions. 
uh, that are that are misinterpreted as as UFOs. Now, if you have you know if you have a human brain and a well developed visual cortex, these are, those types of illusions are inescapable, and that's the kind of common thing that I think needs to be ruled out. Especially when people are saying things like that, those things broke the laws of physics, and you're seeing that specific quote all over the place <laughs> with, the, with this. You know, it's like you know when you when you hear that, that's a huge red flag. That no, the laws of physics probably were not broken, and if they were, you better have some damn good proof uh, that we never see to back that up. So, for example, here's a classic example. We've mentioned it on on the show many times. Steve mentions it on his post, and it's really an important one. If you make an assumption about an object's distance. You may you may therefore think that it's far away and huge and moving very fast. Instead, it might just be small and moving normally at, at a normal velocity, but but being very close and tiny. So those are the kind of things that just one little assumption about distance can completely change your perception about about what you're seeing. Yeah, we also have to mention that when you're in the sky, you don't have the usual background reference points, mm-hmm. and so your brain has a harder time making judgments like that yeah. and it's more susceptible susceptible to oh, optic abs- illusion yeah, yeah like the moon absolutely. illusion yeah. yeah and there's i mean there's the videos were interesting in that there was a lot of of information of you know this was a military you know sensor data so there was some interesting information on the screen about what was actually happening but the bottom line the bottom line was that we're basically looking at what's it called Steve? the proverbial blob, blob squatches blob yeah. these were just Love blobs it. there was really no detail at all i mean most of the images were were infrared so you're not going to really see a hell of a lot of detail anyway but a couple times they they seemed to switch away to another mode one of one of the modes was called tv mode i think mm-hmm. um not sure exa- what exactly that Corresponded to, but uh, but that didn't help much either. So you're basically another blob, low de- low in detail. Um, you know, I don't know uh, the details of any uh, governmental, you know, the government analysis. But I did read a lot of people online coming up with very reasonable scenarios about what it potentially could have been, or at the very least, things that should be ruled out, like, for example, the heat signatures of other planes that were in the vicinity. Perhaps some weird optical artifacts uh, were happening, and that's I think that that's likely as well, or, or at least partially for some of the things uh, that that we were seeing. Or perhaps it was some phenomenon, some natural phenomenon that we have never seen before. That's that's not a, that's not an extraterrestrial craft but it's it's natural and we just have never come across it that kind of stuff does happen you know we don't know we don't right we don't know everything i'm not saying that that's what this was but that's just another thing that is possible before the very last thing on the list after going through all that there's one there's one thing at the at the end of that list and that's an, a ufo a extraterrestrial craft and you gotta you gotta check all those other boxes before you get to that last one you know before leaping to that conclusion and a lot of these people are, are leaping to that conclusion and they're just skipping a lot of those check boxes that they shouldn't. And, and Bob, the bottom line even is, if you check all those boxes, there's no positive information to say that it's a, a spacecraft, right? Exactly. Then you're just making an argument. Then you, the there's, best you could hope to is get to an argument from ignorance. But really, right. if you check all those boxes, what it means is we don't know. Right. There's another box that's like it's it, it will forever be mysterious given the information we yeah. have now. That's another box that's going to have to that when, has to be addressed. And when you just have a blob and there's no details then you can't leap from that to a spacecraft, right? We're not looking at a spacecraft. We're looking at a blob. People who have a disposition for believing in such things do it all the time. They always make that jump. So Elizondo is a believer, and he, being in charge, Mm. he wanted – he was pushing for the release of the best cases. 
yeah. you know, from, from that program. And that's what they came up with. So that in a way that means they have no better evidence than what yeah. we're seeing than the blob, than the, uh, than the mystery blob on that video. Yeah. That's one way. To, that's one way to interpret it. He was asked directly in an interview. I heard him uh, on talk. He was, he was asked if that there was lots of other documentation of this type of thing that have not been released. And he said, yes, very ominously. He's like, yes. And, but that meant nothing to me because the, the questioner, the interviewer should have said, do you have, are you, are there things that are more compelling? And I think if he did have more compelling videos, he would have said that. He would have said it and he would have pushed to release that. So yeah. right, so I think you could interpret that very reasonably as yes, we have lots of similar low grade evidence that that's yeah. I've just showing you, which is of is blob squatch, and I just like I don't even want to see it anymore. Give me something good, solid, something that makes me say, holy crap! This is an exact parallel to the evidence that the Warrens offered us when we investigated them twenty years ago. Yeah, they gave mm-hmm. us their best evidence which was absolute zero evidence absolute crap had nothing better to offer and that was their best yep yeah that's always <laughs> yes yeah, so don't give me a ton of low-grade evidence that i'm not going to be able to get through give me your best evidence and i you know i do have to say especially with this specific phenomenon with you with alien you know visitation i'd, I'd be ha- happy if it's true oh my god that would make you know i want this to be decade. something cool absolutely i want to believe yeah, yeah, but, but it has but to be show real me. cool, though. It, yes. can't, it can't be fake cool. It's got to be real. Yeah, I'm not. I'm. I'm not compelled by a blob on a video, but you, you know, I would like to see an in-depth technical analysis of yes. all the data, which we don't have access yes. to. Yes, and but, right, yeah, and we, and, like and we don't know. And what was shown to us is just a, a clip, a segment of what. Yeah, you know, they they showed us exactly what they wanted us to see. We don't have the whole picture, yeah. even of what the videos that they did release. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is complicated because there's a lot of things going on. Some people were doing their best to uh, to vet this stuff, and one guy was saying, "Well, if you if you notice it when the, when it se- when the object seems to rotate." The plane was banking and the camera was moving at the same time. And when that happens, it seems to rotate. So maybe it is some weird optical thing. Some, somebody else uh, said that there's this, um, there's this known error with the type of gimbals that are used on planes like that. And if you're in, if it's in, in certain scenarios, you could have this weird artifact that happens. And I mean, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that's what happened. I'm just saying these are options that need to be ruled out. Yeah. I, I would put my money, looking at these two videos, I would put my money on an artifact, to be honest with you. But whatever, whatever the evidence shows, we, you know, I would need a much more detailed technical analysis to find it even interesting. And then even then, at best, we would say we don't know what it is because it's a blob. Do you guys know where most of the $22 million went for no. the research project? No, where did that where? Bigelow, yeah, Bigelow his, Aerospace. His Ever buddy. His Robert, buddy. Oh, Robert Bigelow. If you've known him, he is a certainly an ET enthusiast, has said on interviews, he definitely believes that alien life forms have visited the Earth and there are extraterrestrial space spacecraft. And he has also famously had a former organization known as the National Institute for Discovery Sciences. Uh, which was founded in 1995, which was infamous for having purchased a supposedly haunted ranch in Utah 
in which some of the people there described a hyperdimensional portal area, something like a Stargate, in which these <laughs> paranormal shape-shifting creatures known as skinwalkers would emerge. What? What? So, yes. So that's where your hard-earned text. Let us on to address that his his buddy, that did, uh, most of this, a lot of this money went to his buddy Bigelow. Evan was it? He did. He did say that you know he he took steps to try to to make sure that this wasn't seen as just some sweetheart deal for his buddy, and he said that they, they did put a lot of this out to bid, and that he legitimately won uh, won these bids. Whatever, maybe who knows. Uh, but yeah, some of it is kind of mm. kind of sketchy with it's some of the people thin. that have been mm-hmm. involved. And it, to me, it also boils down to this. Uh, at one point, I think it was Elizondo who said, um, he's like, well, look at the videos. He specifically said, you know, I find them compelling. And that's the difference between <sighs> a skeptic, a real yeah. skeptic, and somebody who's not a critical thinker or skeptical at all. Because, because, right, they find, they find stuff like this compelling, but, but scientifically, they are not compelling. And that is the bottom line distinction between people that are really swayed by this and people like us that that have really that look at it look at it scientifically and say no this is not compelling evidence it's not good evidence at all history is not in his favor it's in our favor all right jay how does the flu kill you it's pretty nasty painfully yeah and shockingly it could happen very quickly so about 36,000 people on average of course these numbers can vary greatly depending on the year but on average about 36,000 people in the United States die per year from the flu according 36,000 yep in the United uh, States that's like traffic deaths wow yeah globally uh the numbers are up to 646,000 it's a lot wow. of people. That's a lot of people. And that's with modern treatment. Yeah. Well, Ugh. you know, without a doubt, you can't say that all those people are getting vaccinated. Um, but the World Health Organization, you know, has a number spectrum here. That was the high number. So in a bad year, that's about how many people will die. And every year I like to say something about the flu around this time just to remind people, you know, like that this isn't a cold. It's not something that you can you can shake off. And we absolutely have to take vaccinations very seriously. So the question Steve asked was, how does the flu kill you? So get ready because it's not nice. So the short answer is your body is trying to get rid of the flu or basically any any foreign body. Then the processes that your body goes through to fight an infection like the flu is what typically ends up killing you. So in a way, your own body kills you. So the flu usually enters your body through your eyes, your nose, or your mouth. And this is why you're not supposed to touch your own face until you wash your hands. That's a really really hard habit to break. I I, I touch my face all day. It's just, I think everyone does it all day. If you work in an office, like most people do, you're going to infect yourself touching surfaces, going, you know, going into the public bathroom. You know, if there's a kitchen, you know, it's just, you know, virus can get anywhere. And once the virus does enter one of these mucous membrane oriented holes that you have in your head, the virus will immediately start to use your own cells in your, in your nose or your throat to replicate itself. So your body then can detect the presence of the growing mass of virus and your immune system kicks in and it's, it starts sending you know, tons of white blood cells and antibodies and other things called inflammatory molecules to get rid of the virus, right? So all of this, you know, that's where a lot of uh, flu and cold symptoms come from. Your lungs and respiratory tract are probably where the real fight takes place in your body, though. So T-cells find the infected tissue, right? So when I say infected tissue, it's tissue that has been inundated with the virus. And these T-cells try to destroy the infected tissue, your tissue. And this usually works, right? It does. In, In healthy people, it's fine. But sometimes 
you know, things could take, take a serious uh, nosedive, and this is the part that you could die from. If the T cells destroy too much of your lung tissue, trying to get rid of or purging the, the infection, your lungs will start to deliver less and less oxygen to your body, right? Because it's, it's actually stripping away the surface of your lungs that collect oh, and, yeah. you know, distribute Just gases, right? Imagine that, like pieces of your lungs being like torn apart almost. So Jay, you're, you're saying that your immune system is like the Vorlons. Exactly. That's what you're <laughs> Oh, hey. So th- they call this, <laughs> when good. this happens a lot, when this gets to a serious level, they call this hypoxia, right? Your, your body just can't do the gas distribution that it needs to. And, you know, and then you, you become oxygen starved and you die, like just like that. And this has happened, what I just described, it happens in 24 hours. You're healthy, you get the virus, and 24 hours later, it can kill you. Now, I'm not trying to be alarmist here, but it does happen, guys, 600,000 plus people a year. You know, it's not like it's uncommon. Um, I have to be honest, you know, just to, to keep it real, I haven't heard of anyone dying from the flu in my collection of friends and family, right? I haven't, you know, recently, but Steve, you work in a hospital. So do you have a, a different perspective on that? Because oh, yeah, it, def- it definitely happens. And obviously it hits vulnerable populations most, usually the elderly. What you're describing is is the primary mechanism. But of course, you know, there, when you talk about a flu-related death, there's other ways that that could happen. He's like, Jay, yeah, you probably have a cold, and then you probably got two or three other colds. <laughs> and I'm like, what? Yeah. So this is what happens. So you get the flu, right? And the flu sucks really bad. It can last weeks, and it knocks you out. And that's why you have to sleep for days, right? Because your body is in overdrive fighting you know, this monster that's creeping around inside of you. So your immune system can get maxed out fighting the flu, and let's say on top of that, you get a cold or, hey, how about a bacterial infection, right? And this can happen. And it can happen, especially if you work in places where there's a lot of bacteria. Like a hospital is actually a horrible place to go to if you're sick, right? But you, you, a lot of times you have to go. So what they're saying is you get a bacterial infection like streptococcus or staph, staphylococcus on top of the flu. Now you have your immune system going nuts, to get rid of two different infections now. And they call this, when you get, when you get um, a bacterial infection on top of the flu, they'll call it bacterial pneumonia, right? Because it can really get into your well, tissue. Well, it's, it, it's a super infection, yep. right? Because it's, it's occurring on top of an existing infection. If it gets into your lungs, then it's a pneumonia. Yep. So you might have a, a bacterial pneumonia super infection complicating the flu, but you can also just get viral pneumonia directly yep. if it gets you know, down into your lungs. But with the bacterial infection now, you can become septic from that, which means your blood gets a, a bacterial infection. Yeah. Now, now mm-hmm. this is the big bad. So now your blood becomes septic. And now your body is trying to fight that by having this in, immense inflammatory response. Because I guess you know, there's a, there is an inflammatory response to get rid of viruses and bacteria. It just, it's part of the mechanism. And unfortunately, inflammation can seriously damage your organs. So you can get the flu click over to a bacterial infection, and next thing you know, you have organ damage going on because you, you, you got breached. You know, bacterial infection got all the way into your body. It's not just localized. It's everywhere. Yeah, it's how my – I've mentioned it on the show before. That's how my abuelita died. I mean, I don't know if oh. it was precipitated by a flu, but she lived in Puerto Rico. She, you know, I don't think had access to the, the health care that we're really used to, and this was when I was a child. And, yeah, she was septic when she died. Yeah. I mean, there are many other reasons that people can become septic. 
I'm not sure what, you know, precipitated the blood infection. But by the time you're septic, it's pretty dire. It doesn't mean you're not going to get through it. But if you, you know, if somebody is in sepsis, it's serious. Yeah. If you're septic in the ICU, it's like a 50% mortality rate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's even really in, serious. Even in a top-notch hospital, it's just that there's only so much we can do. You so know? you're just infusing them with antibiotics. Oh, yeah, lick, yeah, you yeah, have yeah, to yeah. trip yeah. antibiotic. Overwhelming. And, again, you know, and that's another scary mm-hmm. avenue to go down because we, everybody knows you know, we're, we are antibiotic compromised right now, which is really scary. Um, so just as a quick tip, if you get the flu or you get even a serious cold, don't go to work. Don't go to work. You're infecting the people at work. You're opening. Hey, don't your, be a hero. Yeah, yeah. yeah there are right? people. That, all you're going to do is be a villain after that. Well, uh-huh. but it's it's also bad for you too because you are you are compromised at that point. You you have a weakened immune system. Your body is really tired. You need to rest. You need to take it easy. You're not doing anybody any favors going in and, and pretending like you're muscling through it. It's just dumb. And we all right. we have to change the culture. And I'll tell you, I don't know about globally, but in the United States, it's like you know. Employers don't like you to stay out when you're sick. You know, a lot, like I shouldn't say, you know, everyone, but a lot of people that I know, it's all basically the same story. Like you got to rough it out as best that you can, you know, but for, do your do yourself a favor and take the time off. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about our sponsor this week, Audible. Guys, I love Audible. I've been using them since the late 90s. And I'm just addicted to it. I'm a, I'm a member. Every once in a while, I jump on. I grab one of my free book credits and download it and start listening on their on their app. And it's fantastic. I'm just addicted. Right now, I'm listening to some books in the Pathfinder series, which are actually kind of like based on D&D. There's just like a D&D world. And Tim Pratt, who is awesome, is an amazing author. I cannot recommend Audible enough. It's just so quick and convenient. And there's just so much on there. It's not just books. There's original audio shows. There's news. There's comedy. Broadcasters, entertainers, magazines, and newspaper publishers. I mean, it's just chock full of a wide variety of awesome stuff. Yeah. Now, Bob, Audible is offering... Our SGU listeners, a free audiobook with a 30 day trial membership. All you got to do, you got to go to audible.com forward slash skeptics and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs. Oh, wait, there's another way. You can, so you can go to audible.com slash skeptics or you can text the word skeptics to 500 500. To get your membership going today. Yeah. What I like about Audible is that you actually own the books. You know, you're not just renting them or streaming them. You actually own them and can listen to them whenever you want. So if you want to join Audible, go to audible.com slash skeptics or text skeptics to 500-500 to get your free audiobook with a 30-day trial. All right, guys, let's get back to our show. Kara, this is, a, you know, this is a layered item. Yeah, we, there's a lot of different angles we could talk about, but we have to talk about this because it's been so many people emailed us and there, and there's so much talk about this apparent CDC, you know, Center for Disease Control ban. It's not really a ban, but ban on certain words and phrases. Tell us what's going on. Yeah. So, um, Steve, you don't need me to tell you that you wrote about this this week. So I do recommend that everybody go to, um, the neurological blog to read uh, Steve's take. I looked into it both um, based on your take, based on the original Washington Post article, which is where all of this um, conversation first started on December 15th, written by Lena Sun and Juliet 
Alperin, I think that's how you pronounce that. And then there was actually some good commentary on it in Scientific American that I wanted to reference. So we'll start with this, the uh, Washington Post article, which is that an unnamed source, a policy analyst within the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta, were at a meeting um, the Thursday last with senior CDC officials. And it was um, a meeting with a lot of budget people. And this unnamed source who, you know, was not permitted to speak publicly about this and asked for anonymity um, said that there were words during the meeting that were pointed to as being forbidden. Those words are vulnerable, entitlement, diversity, transgender, fetus, evidence-based, and science-based. They also mentioned that and the and it. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, right, and yeah. they also mentioned that in certain um, instances, alternatives were given. Specifically, instead of saying science-based or evidence-based, uh, they recommended, quote, CDC bases its recommendations on science in consideration with community standards and wishes. Of course, this is all coming from the mouth of an unnamed policy analyst within this meeting. Now, when the media heard this, um, and I think you'll notice if you look at the Washington Post article, and I'm just going to do a, a, a control F here, that the word ban is not actually used. Oh, they did say banned words once. Uh, crap. Okay. Well, it's not in the headline of this article. Um, but you're right. They do use, you're right. I don't know who I'm talking to when I say that. They do use the word ban as a euphemism, although, um, the article starts by referring to these as forbidden words. Um, all of the, not all, but many of the sources that picked up and ran with this did call this a ban. We got a lot of emails about the word ban. I think it was really unfortunate. They, I think taboo is probably a better term. Yeah. They weren't yeah, forbidden. Yeah. They were not banned. It was just suggested that, hey, if you want your budget approved, you might not want to use these words or phrases. It's like a threat. It's a a, a threat. Well, we don't know. That's the thing. We don't know because we don't don't have a transcript. We don't know if it was a suggestion. Of course, if we had something in writing. Yeah, we don't know if anybody said, point blank, guys, it's a good idea not to use these words because we need to get our budget pushed through and we know we're going to be up against some difficulty. We don't know if the person in the room said, I highly recommend you don't use these words. Don't ask questions why. We don't know if the person in the room was like, do whatever you want, but if you notice, we're consistently getting our stuff shut down, so maybe we play by the rules that we think will work within this administration. We have no idea, but we did see a similar example of this. I think I covered it several weeks ago, maybe a few months ago on the show, when somebody was putting together their budget approval about climate change, and they decided to change some of the language. They were actually asked, um, very point blank, to change some of the language in an effort to get it through. So, In a way, it seems like, yes, this is um, individuals who are obviously pro-science. They work for the freaking CDC. They do science every day. This is an epidemiological institution that does a lot more than just epidemiology. They do evidence-based work. They do science-based work on diverse populations who are vulnerable, who may be transgender. They also talk about Zika virus and other examples in which the word fetus is necessary. But obviously, I think what this really is about is about not banning anything, but about 
censorship. And I think that that's the word that's not being used enough in the media. To call something censorship does not require a legal aspect to it. Censorship can happen via threat. Censorship can happen via suggestion. To censor is just to put somebody or a group of people in a position where if they are to speak or write or reference something, they will have negative ramifications and that could silence them. And I think that's where we're really concerned here. I mean, Steve, you wrote in your piece about the um, the previous, previous problem with the CDC, the 1997 Congress, who said that the CDC uh, should not do research that advocates or promotes gun control. And because they didn't want the headache, they just stopped researching gun violence. Yeah, they did successfully shut down gun mm-hmm. research uh, at the CDC. And so this is this, I think, you know, my interpretation of what's been said and what hasn't been said is that there's just a chilling effect yeah. at the CDC. And clearly they thought internally that they're going to self-censor in order to avoid headaches. So I think they've been just properly cowed at yeah. the CDC. And, but unfortunately it created a situation where everyone has plausible deniability, right? And then, so the CDC director said, there's no banned words. We can say whatever we want. It's like, well, okay, that's not really what's being alleged. The director of the HHS said that the discussion, uh, an internal discussion about budgetary strategies being mischaracterized. So neither the the CDC director or the HHS director, that's Health and Human Services under which the CDC operates, neither mm. of them denied the reports. They just denied the characterization of it as a ban. And of that course. tells me that it's true because they otherwise they would have said this is completely not true, that nothing like this happened. Yeah. This is made up. They didn't say that. They said, oh, you're, it's not quite what you think. It's being mischaracterized. We're, there is, is no ban. So that means this did happen. Yeah. And also, it wasn't just that one policy analyst. The Washington Post was able to corroborate it. And, you know, yeah. journalists require multiple. So- I mean, good journalists want multiple sources before they go to publish. And I think that they felt that they did their due diligence and got multiple sources. They to had corroborate. multiple sources. Yeah. yeah and so obviously something happened. We don't know point blank exactly the wording, but we do know the gist. And that's what's important in this conversation. Uh, I thought it was really interesting um, that there's a piece in Scientific American. It was published on just yesterday about this whole issue in which a Scientific American reporter actually interviewed a cognitive scientist from UC San Diego. And this cognitive scientist, her research is basically on how language changes our perceptions. And so a lot of the questions in this interview are like, you know, what happens when we use certain words versus when we don't use other words? She does a great example of saying, you know, if I tell you a hamburger is 80% lean, you're going to think of it as healthier than if I say it's 20% fat. Yeah, it's the framing issue. Yeah. And this is a... um, not a necessary outcome of this, but a possible outcome of this, which is very worrisome. Like that, basically, this whole article is just here to to kind of provide some evidence as to why words really do matter, especially and this already in conversation. Is because, like the CDC health surveys, they've stopped asking about gender identity and things mm-hmm. and questions like that. These questions are already being censored out of the data that they are collecting. So this is not happening in a vacuum. And it's just unfortunate that the reporting got so caught up on the ban word. Yeah, and I agree. it really just it enabled the other side just to say fake news, it's been it's been debunked and then criticize us for even talking about it as for spreading fake news. Like no. Yeah, and then just change the subject and move more on. More nuance here. Okay, let's mm-hmm. move on. Jay, it's who's that <laughs> yeah. noisy time. Okay, last week I played this noisy. 
Lots of guesses. Very, uh, in, very intriguing noise. Bad guesses, though. Lots of bad ones. <laughs> any, any correct ones? Well, I, you know what's funny? There's a line where I don't know if people are kidding. Yeah. You know, if you think about it, I just don't know. So, I mean, you know, either way, it's, this is all for fun. But one guy wrote in, this is Joe Vander Eden, and he said, or Eden, he said, it's the Eastern Whipbird. And then he said, slow the sound down, and it sounds like a rapid crescendo. First time I've guessed in nine years, I've been listening. Cheers, man. I think he, this was a legit guess. I'm not laughing at you. Um, this, <laughs> yeah, thanks, Jay. <laughs> but I, I thought the, the Whipbird was a funny whip. Whipbird. I like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah maybe like it could have been. Jay I mean, it sounds uh, like something you would do. Slow it down, speed it up, do something. And Kay Chalice said, hi to Who's That Noisy? Love the show. This week's Noisy sounds like a Tesla coil starting up and a spark firing off of it as it discharges. That's what I was thinking. However, the winner for this week, Justice Smith said to Who's That Noisy? Noisy. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. Noisy. Probably too late, but I've been pondering the familiar sounding noisy all day, and then it struck me. Is it the sound of the recently observed neutron star collision? The Kilanova? The gravitational oh. waves produced by that event, as recorded by LIGO, made a very similar sound. Or maybe that it was rip. a bird. I don't know. Wow. Everyone like backs up <laughs> with the bird. So yeah, so last week's noisy that was sent, this was sent in by a listener named Steve Harris who uh, is a friend of the show. It's a huge blast of energy that's generated. These two neutron stars collided with each other. The this generate the energy that was generated is in the form of gravitational waves, and that sends a ripple through space time. Right, so it's very science fictiony, but it actually happens. Gravitational waves do not make any sounds, but the scientists can convert the frequencies into audio files that we could hear, and that's why we could hear this, this noisy. Now, these uh, two neutron stars collided 130 million years ago. This is like dinosaur era. Gravitational waves um, that the collision created just recently reached the Earth, so it took 130 million years for it to get here, which is very far away. And another interesting thing is activity like this is where gold and platinum come from. Yeah, Bob talked about that. Yeah. I have a new noisy. Let's hear it. Check this one out. Okay. That's it? That's it. Could be funny. Could be serious. Could be, you know, high up. Could be very low. Can I ask you, is that an animal? I'm not telling you anything. This is the last noisy of the year. There are no hints. That means it's an animal. There are no hints. There's no help. Vegetable. All right, that noise was sent in by a listener named John. Uh, thank you very much. Guys, have a great year. I had a wonderful year with Who's That Noisy. Thank you so much. I got a ton of good noises queued up for next year, but man, send me in those noises. I, I need them because I just keep picking the best one. Email me with answers and noises at WTN at theskepticsguide.org. All right, everyone, we have a great interview coming up with Joe Nickel. Now, I have a 25-minute abridged version of the interview in the show. But if you are a premium member of the SGU, you can listen to a full 50-minute version of the interview, which will be uploaded at the same time as premium content. So some people like to skip the shortened version, just listen to the full, the longer version. So And Joe go, is go a true renaissance man. Yeah, yeah, as you say during the interview. And so go ahead, 25 <laughs> minutes if you want to do that, if you want to skip this so that you can listen to the full version. Otherwise, let's listen to Joe Nickel. All right, well, we're sitting here with Joe Nickel at SciCon 2017. Joe, welcome back to the show. 
Always good to be with you. Yeah, it's been a little bit. Of course, as you, as you get my age, it's good to be anywhere <laughs> with anyone. But, but, uh, so for almost 50 years, you've been a paranormal investigator. Has anyone else you know of that's basically made a career out of doing that full time? Not really. Yeah. There, there are people who want to be sort of known for doing that, and some of them repeat my work and don't give me credit. But no, I think as far as, as far as I know, I'm the only one who actually has a full time salaried position, science-based, this is note all the adjectives, paranormal investigation. Yeah. That is, there are a lot of people who are doctors, psychologists, college professors, physicists, whatever, that are great investigators, but they have a day job. Mm-hmm. And I'm the only one that I know who full-time has a day job doing it. But please don't tell the people I work with that I, you know, have a good time or <laughs> anything like that because they... I would be an end to it. And there's a lot of gullible investigators out there, so you had to qualify that as science-based. Well, exactly. If you don't say science-based, because there probably are some ghost hunter types who doing it more or less full-time or um, whatever, but bless them, they don't know what they're doing. And, and quite often, the ghost hunter types, I mean, they're photographing orbs or some other ghostly effect or recording electromagnetic fields or something. Or they're saying, did you hear that? Yeah. Did you hear that? Right, right. That's yeah. their refrain. Did you hear that? And in fact, they're often, I make this argument, detecting themselves. Yes. Because <laughs> what do you get when you when you go through a, an old place and you stir up the dust? Well, of course you will get orbs then because orbs are particles of dust reflecting, bouncing back the flesh. Or they get... EMF readings, mm-hmm. well, they may be recording some of their own electronic equipment, mm-hmm. for heaven's sake. It's really a fool's errand, and they don't know what they're doing. And they even admit it sometimes by saying, I, I remember one guy saying, we use a Geiger counter or anything, anything that could give us some data. Yeah. I think, oh, just anything? Like a dowsing rod? Sure. Psychic? Sure. Yeah, flip a coin? Sure. Data. No, it's, it's this is a fool's errand because... First of all, they, these methods are not shown to actually detect ghosts. So you could collect a lot of it, but so what? Right. And then they don't know what it's actually measuring, and they have no idea what to do with this quote-unquote data. Yeah, so they, I know we're looking at this. They, they buy like an EMF meter off the shelf or whatever, and then you ask them, so what frequency do ghosts emit EMF and electromagnetic <laughs> frequency? Well, whatever the detector is set to, whatever range my detector is set to, that's, I guess that's what the frequency is. And they have, they have no idea that yeah. microwave towers or, right. or faulty wiring or, or drone just equipment iron, could be. Iron will do it. I mean, yeah, just, yeah. I mean it's, it's electromagnetic fields are ubiquitous, mm-hmm. uh, but they just have no idea. And, and they're um, everywhere. and i'm pretty sure when i've gone with some of these groups they're detecting my magnetic personality but that's that's another complicated story so joe what's happening though they must know that there is information out there explaining how not only these devices are supposed to be used what they're actually supposed to be detecting and people such as yourself who have shown you how to go about a real scientific investigation, yet are they just conveniently ignoring that because they've already come up with conclusions in their head and they're just retrofitting everything backwards? It's very hard for people who, once they have completely committed to an idea, to be reasoned out of it. If they didn't use reason to get the the yeah. belief, they're not going to be reasoned out of it. 
And sometimes I suspect that some of the more cynical Bigfoot hunters and the like uh, don't believe. They, they, they know better. They're just out to, for the hustle. They collect money for Bigfoot tours. People collect funds for, you know, ghost walks, ghost tours they give or haunted house tours. And that it's not in their interest to believe any kind of skepticism. So what, what some of them seem to do is they'll talk about orbs unless and until you point out what really causes orbs. And then they'll say, well, yes, uh, there, there is some indication of that. That's true. But, you know, there are different kinds of orbs. And we can tell the difference uh, sometimes between the uh, the type of orb you're talking about and and the uh, the other type, and, and it's just it's just oh, they're often never never land. They rationalize it all. Yeah, and whether we have no real good test as to whether people are sincere or not, mm-hmm. we don't always know. Joe, have you ever uh, talked to ghost hunter? And when I say ghost hunter, there's a few different kinds, but the kind that actually believes that ghosts exist and that they're you know, these you know, varying degrees of people thinking that they're doing good work or whatever. But did you ever educate someone that's in that classification out of being a ghost hunter? Not, not as directly, maybe, as you suggest, but I, I remember I was checking into a hotel, motel, in the edge of Syracuse, and I was speaking at a community college. And the guy at the hotel desk said, are you really Joe Nickel? When I gave him my name. And I said, I, I think so. I think I can prove it. And I gave him a wooden nickel. And he said, you know, um, I, I was a ghost hunter and interested in all that stuff until I read your book. Wow. That's and really, I, that's I awesome. thought, wow, that's really good. Yeah. I gave my talk. A woman came up and she said, well, I was one of those silly ghost hunters until I heard you talk and, yeah. so and read working. some of your stuff. And, and I quit. And uh, that was twice in one night. I never got mm. over that. It was like, wow. What are the odds? <laughs> and I've had people say similar things about, you know, they say they read my book looking for a miracle. Yeah. And it just changed them as far as, you know, they would realize that all the sort of magic trick stuff, the weeping statues, the shrouds of Turin, the, all of that stuff is just without merit. Yeah. And many of them went all the way over to to an atheist view, though I like to, you know, always insist that people, it's, it's good to become an atheist, but that's only part of the way. Yeah. And the rest of the way is to become a secular humanist, which mm-hmm. is an atheist with a heart. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and and uh, you can become a whole person, and you can actually have moral values. Of course. Um, you don't need a God to tell you not to kill, to be nice to people, uh, treat people with respect. You don't. And I recommend secular humanists. I'm proud to be a secular humanist. But when people call me an atheist, I say, well, that's that's true. I don't deny that. But that's only part of the story. And then it gives me an opportunity to say secular humanist. And a lot of people will bite, you see, instead of being angry at you. Oh, you're an atheist. You should be stoned to death. They'll say, what is that? And I use my little clever, it's an atheist with a heart. Yeah. And what's that mean? And, and you know, yeah, guy, it, it's like you're starting the conversation from a different perspective. And it, it, it's, it, it, it's more digestible than atheist because we all know, you know, the term atheist is dirty. It's bad. Now, but, the term skeptic also carries some baggage sure. with it. You must it, have experienced that over the It does. Years as well. and, and we have to sometimes distinguish, as we all know, with climate change, you know, what does it mean? You mm-hmm. can say you're a, you're a skeptic. 
about climate change, well, no, you're really a denier. We've had to make that distinction. Because you can be skeptical of anything, absolutely anything. Uh, the earth being round, you right. can be skeptical of that and believe in a flat earth. And people do. So I, I think skeptic is a good word, but I want it, you know, I want us to know what we're talking about. And I say that we are, a, a skeptic is one who's skeptical of that to which skepticism is due, mm -hmm. which sounds a little circular, but it's, but it's a way of saying it that if something has, it sounds too good to be true. Something is very far fetched on the basis of the pretty established scientific knowledge. Um, Bigfoot being an example, no fossil record, no evidence, not mm -hmm. a live specimen, nothing. Yep. So it doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but it means it's very, 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 very edit the tape. So there's 50 more varies yeah. in there. Unlikely. And so we, we, uh, we're skeptical of that for those reasons. It doesn't mean we deny it. Just it's a measure of, of how doubtful we are. And uh, so I think skeptic is a good word. It means based on evidence, we question something. Based on evidence. Whereas add, a denier is not yeah. really got a body of real good knowledge, I don't think. And that, maybe that it, that's a helpful distinction. Well, I think you know, adding in based on high quality or reliable or, or repeable evidence needs to be put in there because the deniers have evidence. Flat yeah, earthers have evidence. Yeah. So you know, skepticism is a process, right? We care about going through a valid scientific logical Absolutely. process, whereas denial, the conclusion comes first, right? And then they just are denying the science that's inconvenient for the conclusion, yeah, that is, which is really what they're on about. Whereas, you know, we would change our minds based upon the evidence. Right. They're, not, they're immune to evidence. So it's a form of pseudoscience where they sort of flip the narrative to they're not trying to promote a positive claim. They're trying to deny a claim that's established you know, within science. It, it turns out that we have to be careful because skeptics have also come across a lot of times not as thoughtful science-based skeptics, but as uh, naysaying, knee-jerk, mm -hmm. denying debunkers. Yeah. Cynics, yeah. Um, all those flying saucers, that's all a bunch of hooey and... Uh, uh, those people were probably drunk and these people were probably hoaxing when they often didn't know a thing about the particular case in question. Whereas I would, as you know, trouble to go to uh, Flatwoods, West Virginia yeah, yeah, and yeah. talk to old folks and check out what what could have been uh, the UFO and the, oh, there was a meteor seen over three states. Oh, and uh, this creature with a heart-shaped face and terrible claws. Well, that's that's our old friend, the barn owl. So, yeah. so yes, a frightening, uh, frightening case. But we we need to know whereof we speak and to be able to say to people, "Here's why I doubt that case." Right, exactly. Yeah. It's based on on it's an evidence based yeah. doubt. You need to go through the process. You can't just jump to a skeptical conclusion because you think it's skeptical. Exactly, it's process, as yeah. you've pointed out. Um, so, I always, when I have time, I try to to elaborate. Uh, on the evidence and and show where I got to, you know. So get, getting back to your job as an investigator, because I do think that that is something that we need within the skeptical movement. The you idea have to still of, you know, do that. To still do, yeah, we need boots on the ground. And I think uh, one of the things I, I get worried about a little bit it, is that with the internet and everything, it's just so easy 
to do your internet research and to think that that's enough. And maybe for some questions it is if the, if the information you need is all there. But, you know, when there isn't, you know, there's just no substitute for doing physical investigation. And, we, and we've chatted about this before, including just recently, about the fact that when you physically go into a place, you learn things that you just will not learn on the internet. You just so you told you were telling us a story about when you went to the sniper's nest of Oswald. Oh tell yes, us, yes. Tell us about that. Well, it was a revelation for me because I'd I'd certainly been very skeptical about the conspiracy theories, and I'd read a lot. Maybe I hadn't yet read Gerald Posner's excellent book, but mm-hmm. uh, maybe I'd read Vincent Bugliosi's very good book. And, and was beginning to see, you know, how to, how to think about these, these far flung conspiracies. And I looked out the window of the, from the sixth floor and it was, was a revelation to me because I'd, I'd heard all about how it was, would have taken some expert marksman that's unimaginable and so forth. And you see that what basically was happening is the motorcade is, is going, was going away from them. Mm-hmm. They rounded a curve and went, and was going away from the rifleman, and all you had to do was just, as you fired your shots, was just gently lift your barrel a little bit to keep in, you know. On target, yeah. On yeah. target. Whereas, if you had someone going at right angles to you, yeah. that's a very difficult shot, because then it's not some gentle movement, it's it's you may have to move in a sweeping and lead him a little bit way, and then then you've got to lead a little, yeah, shoot yeah. a little ahead, and so forth. And it's a lot more complicated. Um, I don't think it was a very complicated uh, shot, mm-hmm. and there is some question over which of the three shots was the missed shot. But people often don't don't even take that into consideration that Oswald missed one. One shot. of the three shots missed. So yeah. um, if you look at the best evidence. Uh, pretty clear that Oswald Oven by himself was at the sniper's nest, left his handprints on the boxes and on the, on the gun, and we have pictures of him with, I mean, it had masses of corroborative evidence. Mm-hmm. Like uh, the shroud, right? But then. Just like the shroud. The conspiracy theorists pick at each one with a special invented ex- exactly. excuse or explanation, but exactly. it all hangs together really and, to and I one find this story. With, with the things I've worked on over and over, I, I look for corroborative evidence. Yeah. I look for, I want to be able to explain things like the Flatwoods monster. Um, why do I think that's a bar now? Because I'm adding up the heart-shaped face, the fact that it could glide, that it made a high-pitched hissing sound, that Mrs. May said it had terrible claws. And the only thing I have to have a special argument for is that, of course, the barn owl is not, you know, eight feet tall, uh, but it would be perched on a branch. Mm -hmm. And that gives you the height. And corroborating that, all the witnesses were vague about the the bottom of the creature. Yeah. Sure. They described it sense. sort of waist up. Yeah. And the bottom was sort of maybe blur, green. Yeah. They weren't sure. Well, they were just seeing foliage underneath. Yeah. They, this whole thing happened in a matter of moments, yeah. and it came right at them. And then I I I would I go even further, more than most skeptics probably would care about. But I I wonder about things like, well, why did the barn owl? Stand its ground. Why didn't it just, when these people were coming up with flashlights and a dog and stuff, why didn't it just fly off? Mm-hmm. What was this about? And then I thought, it was a she and she's brooding young. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
And so she just went right after, went right over the hissing. And you have to hear a barn owl do this. Yep. It's a scariest damn thing. I had no mm. idea that they made a noise like this. It's a scary noise with a claws out. And that's when I was pretty sure that of all the creatures on this planet, the one that best fit all of those with, with a very little rationalization on my part and not yeah. really a stretch in any no point. At all, yeah. Um, this, this is likely what they saw. And yeah. I, I often argue then for what I call the preferred hypothesis. Mm-hmm. That is the hypothesis that explains the most with the, the fewest assumptions. Right. Occam's razor. Occam's razor, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And then I say to other people, look, you can't just not like my hypothesis. You can say, oh, I don't think that's, you know. No, no. If you want to remove it from its preferred perch, you must do one of two things. You must show it has an absolutely unquestionable fatal flaw. If it does, I'm, I'm a dead man. I'm gone. But if it's just you have an opinion about something, well, that's, that's not, that's not enough. Yeah. And the other factor is you can remove mine by having a demonstrably better one. Mm-hmm has fewer assumptions. Um, say I was describing some type of owl that didn't live in the area, and I was having to propose that, uh, well, they could fly out of their area, and it's an possible that they could have come that far, and so forth. Okay, but you come along, and you know of a variety of owl that is better than mine, bigger owl, and lives right there. Well, see, then... And in fact, I did that to myself when, uh, with Mothman, I first thought it was a barn owl, rushed into print. Oh, this was a bad mistake on my part. And then I learned about the red crimson eye shine and I started looking into it. I said, whoops. So I went down there and spent time and I found that right in that area were barred owls. They were bigger and they had these crimson, this crimson eye shine that was described as like bicycle reflectors. Mm-hmm. And I just shifted owls. And one of my friends said, oh, big deal. You weren't very wrong. And I said, well, okay, but but I was wrong. I was mm. wrong. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I need to correct that. Yeah. And I wrote how a often, new article. And how often do the other side of these arguments do that, correct themselves? Not, not and so admit often. It. Yeah. Not no, so it doesn't often. happen. I've seen, uh, I saw one ghost hunter who had written quite a glorious thing about the Myrtle's plantation and the, the slave Chloe who had poisoned, uh, poisoned the plantation children because of evil things the master was doing to her and stuff and all this. And I showed, I went there, of course, Discovery Channel, let me have the, I, Got to spend the entire night alone in the Big Myrtle's plantation. I remember that. Yeah, it was yeah. great. And I stayed up quite a while with, you know, uh, infrared uh, image device and so forth, looking for evidence and prowling around, seeing if I could cause a door to open. I could. Yeah. I could duplicate mysterious things. But um, I went to the Historical Society and found out that Chloe was fictitious None of that ever happened. No such slave, no record. They had records of slaves that were, she was not a slave. It was a made up name. And more than that, the family that, the family members who died were not poisoned. They died in a cholera epidemic. And it just blew that out of the water. And one ghost hunter without citing me, but he did silently, uh, I can show you the two versions and he did correct that 
part of that story. I don't know if it, it was from me. I think it was. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. it was. But good for him that he did that. Good. You know. Uh, but we all should do that. We all should constantly be uh, tweaking. You know, I've I've had a lot of. Uh, uh, research I've done on orbs. I've made orbs. I now, whenever I go to a, a famous haunted place like Alcatraz, I make orbs. I recently was in a, uh, insane asylum in West Virginia, mm-hmm. great historic age, dates back to the Civil War, huge place. And I stepped back, lagged back from the ghost tour, the tour group and ducked into one of the old crumbling rooms <laughs> and made orbs. Mm-hmm. And I made orbs at the Conjuring House from the movie The Conjuring, sure. uh, the Warrens yeah. uh, play, and uh, made orbs in the barn where the witch, uh, you know, had supposedly hanged herself. Well, none of that happened, and I show that it's easy to make orbs. Yeah. And if you make them under control conditions, you pretty well know what you're speaking of. You can mass produce. I them, only yeah. recently had an opportunity to for a upcoming. TV show to show that you can also make orbs on a video. Mm-hmm. And for a while, I hadn't really known that, that uh, you think, well, the flash bounces back and you make still photos, but you don't have a flash when you're shooting video. Well, but you can have, and Tom Flynn and I made a lot of did control conditions and we, we could show you, we could see a particular particle of dust and watch it on the camera and see that that, that is the orb in the picture. Mm-hmm. But the camera's recording it uh, as it comes close, out of focus, and it makes it perfectly round, even though the piece of lint might not be round at all, really. Yeah. And an orb, just for our listeners, just a sphere of light on a photo that gullible ghost hunters say is a ghost. It's a ghost right. orb. They, they, get, yeah. they get orbs, they say. Yeah. And, yeah. and that always amused me. And there's a serious point here. If you look at the history of ghost photography, the earliest photographs, daguerreotypes, ambrotypes, and so forth, had no ghosts Ah. in them. Only when glass tintypes, for example, there are no ghost tintypes that I've ever found. Unless somebody was making a theatrical ghost picture of Hamlet's ghost or something of a play or something like that, but no, no real ghost photos. And... Only when glass plate negatives made possible double exposures, and then the ghosts look like people on their transparent, and they look like we all came to think ghosts look like. But if you go on through and watch how the cameras develop, when these little pocket cameras come in, you start getting a couple of things. One are these orbs. Mm-hmm. We didn't have those before. Mm-hmm. The little built-in flash camera is just ideal for producing orbs. And also, the le- the which Bob was, was kind enough, I think, to credit me with the camera strap effect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Camera strap. <laughs> I, I think uh, <laughs> I, I was certainly one of the first people who, yeah. who, who caught on to that. And that was thought of as ectoplasmic strands yeah, right. or something. Joe, I remember when we talked about you oh, gosh, and yeah. camera straps, and then we did it. We We're like, let's, let's, let's see, let, we want to see it for ourselves, and we tried to do it. Yeah, when you yeah, and practice it's, uh, a little and you get, you start to, holy great. Christ, I got them, they're working. Yes, and the more of that kind of, this is, this is in a phrase that I like to use a lot is hands-on skepticism. In other yeah. words, go there. The only right. way I solved, I've talked about this in probably every show of yours, but the only way I solved the footsteps on the stairs mm-hmm. at McKenzie House was I went there yeah. and I found, which I wouldn't have done by sitting in my armchair at home, 
I found that there was a staircase in the building next door and a late night cleanup crew, and I was able to talk to people and verify that whole thing. And it was just a lesson to me, like, what if I hadn't come here? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Wow. And I knew that. Yeah. that was that was about 1972, and that's when I really knew, wow, this is what you have to try to whenever you can. Yeah. Now, a cold case is 50 years old and the house is torn down. Nothing you can do. That's there. that's not going to help you. But again, you might go to the historical society and you might look mm-hmm. at microfilm of old accounts of the story and show how the earliest version was not like what was told later, and that might be very useful, yeah. you know. And you might want to do an experiment. In other words, the the uh, camera strap, the orbs, yeah. those yeah. kind of things are eminently experimentable with. Yeah, yeah. So, and so I roll up my shirt sleeves and make shrouds of Turin the subject of of my upcoming talk. Well, Joe, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. I'm grateful to be talking with you. (laughs) Thank you, Joe. Take care. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake. And I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one they think is the fake Even though this is the last science or fiction of the year, just three regular news items, nothing special about this one. This is your last opportunity, guys, though, to get your score up before we do the reveal next week. Are you ready? Yes, my liege. Mm. Okay, here we go. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes, Supreme Commander. (laughs) Item number one. New research on medieval cathedral glass finds that it flows 16 orders of magnitude faster than previously estimated. Item number two, new flu vaccine practice guidelines increase precautions for patients with egg allergies due to an increase in reported allergic reactions. And item number three, researchers have successfully harnessed sperm to deliver chemotherapy directly to cervical cancer cells. Evan, go first. This medieval cathedral glass, it flows 16 orders of magnitude faster than previously estimated. That's a lot of zeros after that one, right? Yeah. 16 of them. So that would be something. I mean, what? Oops. Uh, got that wrong. Forgot to carry the billion or whatever. <laughs> I don't, I don't, it seems, seems a little strange. That's a, that's a gajillion, by the way, <laughs> yeah. I think. Um, but okay. I mean, sure. I mean, how much science is going on in the study of the viscosity of cathedral glass? So maybe they did some research years ago, put it aside, came back. A generation later and realized, oh man, we were way off. So I think that one could be right. Then the the second one about the flu vaccine, uh, the guidelines increase precautions for patients with egg allergies due to an increase in reported allergic reactions. Well, uh, I, I, I tend to think this one would also be science. I, I bet reporting of allergies is generally on the increase. I don't see why this would be any different. You know, the peanut butter example, I think, is kind of obvious. Nobody knew it when I was a kid. No one knew about it. But, you know, now it's obvious. It's everywhere and well-recognized. So other things must have also gone along, certainly, that trajectory. And I think this one could also be the science. The last one, uh, they harness sperm to deliver chemotherapy directly to cervical cancer cells. Directly. Maybe that's the problem with this one. Maybe it's an indirect or something else happens along the way. Hmm. I think all three of these are science. I don't know which one's the fiction. Gee whiz. Egg allergies. Although 
there are an increase in reported reported allergic reactions. I don't think uh, I, I think something's up here. Something's wrong with this news item. I can't quite put my finger right on it. I think the other two are going to turn out to be science, though. So I'm just going to have to say the egg allergies one is the fiction. Sorry. Okay, Kara. I, it's very hard for me to believe the first one. Very hard. 16 orders of, unless it's like so infinitesimally small, 16 orders of magnitude is like, I don't know. Like, how small would it have to be? I know. It's like at a certain point, if they were off that much, then wouldn't all of this glass just be liquid already? I don't know. I'm very confused. Flu vaccine practice guidelines increase precautions for patients with egg allergies due to an increase in reported. I, this one seems like fiction to me too, because I thought that there wasn't albumin in like newer vaccine maybe there's still albumin in vaccine in flu vaccines but there's like the nasal spray ones there's all the different kinds i don't know researchers have successfully harnessed sperm to deliver chemotherapy directly to cervical cancer cells hilarious i don't know why that's hilarious but i kind of want that it's the delivery mechanism that you're curious about (laughs) i mean exactly is it like in a turkey baster uh, I think I'm going to go with Evan, but I think it's not because of some feeling, <clears throat> Evan. Mm. I think <laughs> I think it's because it's that there's less albumin, and so people need to uh, people are having less reactions. I don't know why they would change guidelines around that, but I think that's probably what's happening. Okay, Jay. Okay, so you wrote about the medieval cathedral glass and it's flowing. 16 orders of magnitude faster than previously estimated. That's 16 times. That's a gigantic number. 10 quadrillion. Yeah, so my, <laughs> Thanks, my <Bob>. initial <laughs> observation here is the, the I, I have a skeptical flag going off about the idea about flowing glass. You know how they go, like, look at that old west window you know, from that western town. <laughs> and why is it thicker on the bottom? And I remember reading something about saying that they put the thicker side of it on the bottom because it weighs more you know what i mean like it just was a balancing thing it didn't really have anything to do with the glass flowing so i i'm kind of calling a little bit of shenanigans on the glass flowing at all and if it is is it flowing enough you know or fast or whatever i don't know i just uh, yeah so the whole thing to me i do have a memory of some type of legitimate information in there so yeah next one flu vaccine practice guidelines increase in patients and eggs and juggling yeah i don't agree (laughs) This doesn't bother me, especially because I'm really, I'm really not happy about the first one. And then this last one here um, about the researchers with the harness, the sperm delivery. Yeah, of course they're going to repurpose sperm. Those little guys got to work. They got to work for their money. <laughs> you know, you don't want to accidentally get someone pregnant, right? I mean, maybe they're genetically modifying them to not be able to impregnate someone, and they're just using like the the shell of the of the sperm and not like you know they're not delivering actually any genetic material. Sure. Crazy. I don't know. I just don't – I'm not feeling right about the glass flowing one. That's the fiction. And Bob. Yeah, this, this, the 16 orders of magnitude. Come on. You know, it, actually, they've gone back and forth so many times about glass flowing or not that I forget where the last consensus right? was. Exactly. The, I don't even <laughs> remember it flowing point. itself. And 16, <laughs> 16 orders of magnitude. I mean that's a lot. That's huge. But the thing is, of course, if it if the original movement was sufficiently small, then even sixteen orders of magnitude of next to nothing is still probably close to nothing. Good so I, that can go. Nothing would surprise me at this point. The sperm one, yeah, that's I they totally make sense. I mean, the sperm's got an an axoneme. I mean, come on, of course, what a great way to transport stuff. But even that one can be just like because the, the first two seem a little dicey, and then the three, the third one sounds so reasonable. I could just see Steve totally. 
playing that. <laughs> Whatever. You know, you just got to just go. With, right, I'm going to go with Jay. I'm going to go with Jay. <laughs> you know, the Bob, idea, going with, going with me is going with yourself 72% of the That's time. That's right. When you're playing <laughs> no, with yeah. Jay, you're playing. Never mind. 16 orders of magnitude just <laughs> seems like a little bit too much. So I'll say that one is fiction as well. Right, yeah. Bob and Jay are the, with the glasses, the fiction, and Evan and Kara them. are with the flu vaccine is the fiction. So you all Steve, agree. Uh, Steve, <laughs> yeah. can we say that me and Bob are against Evan and Kara today? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then recent, so you all agree Vicious. that researchers have successfully harnessed sperm to deliver chemotherapy directly to cervical cancer cells. You all think that one is science, and that one is. Science. Nice. All right. All right. So two of you are right and two of you are wrong. But we were all right on this who one. In a moment, they did exactly that. They uh, packed a chemotherapeutic agent, doxorubicin, into bovine sperm cells. And bovine. Then they, they outfitted <laughs> – this is just a proof of concept. They outfitted okay. them with little magnetic harnesses. And then they used a magnetic field to guide the sperm to where they wanted it to, to the tumor, basically. And then they released them. They released the sperm. Release the hound. <laughs> Go, be free. And then, so then they swim up to the tumor. And, and when they, you know, you know, how tumor. sperm work, when their head hits the target, they explode with enzymes with eats its way into the cell. And so what they, they do that and they release the chemotherapy right into the cancer cells. And uh, in this study, they found that it ki- it killed eighty percent, more than eighty percent of the cancerous um, cells. Yeah, yeah. I think this this is all in a petri dish type of thing. Oh, okay. Yeah, so not in okay. critters. This, this is so Test far tube. from being a real. Person. It needs to be tested yeah. in animals and then humans. Those are the next yeah. two steps. Yeah. All right. So I didn't I didn't quite hear the answer. Do they strip out the genetic material? They didn't say. In the, well, in they the probably don't have everything. to at this stage in the process. Yeah. They're just trying but to make they, sure it's- The idea is, though, to get the drug to the cancer cells and bypass the healthy cells, right? Mm-hmm. So, and it, and it did that with, so it was just a way of targeting the chemotherapy at the cancer cells. And, and, and this method did work to some extent. So, okay. you know, this, this has potential. It is, it is, it is something funny about thinking about this sperm swimming to the tumor and delivering the chemotherapy, you know? It's like a, yeah, guided it's like bomb. A little, like a little, yeah, guided bomb. It's like little, it's little Arnold Schwarzenegger's going, kill the Duma. Let's move on. So you, Bob and Jay, you think that this one, that the first one is the fiction. New research on medieval cathedral glass finds that it flows 16 orders of magnitude faster than previously estimated. You guys think this one is the fiction. Evan and Kara thinks this one is science. And this mm-hmm. one is Science. Oh, it is. Yes. yes. We Sorry, did it, guys. Kara. Evan. Well done. Woo-hoo. Well done. Sorry, brothers. So, <laughs> but you guys are correct in that it was so tiny to begin with that it's still tiny, even though it's 16 <laughs> yeah, orders of magnitude. Yeah, it's the only it way it could be, be true. Right. Now, yeah. glass is interesting because glass kind of def- – we're not sure if it's a liquid or a solid because it basically has the properties of a liquid but at – our time scales, it behaves like a solid because it's an amorphous substance. It's sort of structured like a liquid, but it's like frozen in time in a way. Um, and so it acts like a Is it a like quantum a liquid? No, I don't, I don't think so. Okay. Um, <laughs> but So by, by doing careful measurements of medieval cathedral glass, so it's just really old, uh, they were able to get the, you know, refine their estimates of how, how quickly you know, the glass flows or how viscous it is. And they found that, oh, it's actually a lot 
faster than what we previously thought. And then, Evan, you, I think you're the one who said maybe it was just some like one old study somewhere. And that's kind of right. They really didn't have a lot of direct measurements of this. Mm. But they said that even with the new estimates, it would take billions of years. Billions of years. Billions wow. of years to cause nano-sized alterations in the shape of the glass. So it's still Wait. insignificant. But yeah. it still technically flows. Yeah, how's the glass thicker at the bottom if it takes billions of years not, for nano-sized changes? It's not thicker at the bottom because of the flow of the glass. It's, it's manufacturing. Jay is correct. When, especially the, they used to manufacture glass by spinning it and then to, to make it lay out flat. And one side would always be a little bit thicker. And they would put that side on the bottom because it's more stable to make something bottom mm. heavy than top Hey, heavy. Jay, you were right. Yeah. Yeah. I agreed. Yeah. Thank you. It's <laughs> fundamental. So, but I, I was trying to trick you up because, yeah, it is flowing 16 orders of magnitude faster, but it's still freaking slow. Um, yeah, I know. Okay. I, I lost for you, Jay. I did it for you, bud. Thank you. Well, <laughs> together, bud. See, I warned you last week that if you go together to try to game the system, it doesn't work. It has to be organic. All right. That did happen. That's right. I, I yeah. did it. I did it to go down in flames with my brother. All right. Good Aww. for you. Oh, man. That's love. Turn it, turn it into something noble. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That means that new flu vaccine practice guidelines increase precaution for patients with egg allergies due to an increase in reported allergic reaction. Reactions is the fiction because the new guidelines are the exact opposite. They say do not worry at all about egg allergies with the flu vaccine. Basically, oh. there are no reports of of people with egg allergies having problems with the flu vaccine. The amount of egg – because flu vaccines are often incubated in eggs, but the amount of egg proteins that find their way into the final vaccine is negligible and it's too small to provoke an immune reaction. So even people who have – a potentially fatal anaphylactic allergic reaction to eggs can still safely get the flu vaccine. So That's cool. do not worry about your egg allergies. Get the flu vaccine. That's the bottom line. Those are the new recommendations. I love the exact it. But didn't they used to have to ask? Yes, they still do. Uh, on the form. But, oh, okay. I had to check you don't have to yeah. anymore. That's it. You don't have to ask. You don't have to avoid the flu vaccine. It's a mm. non-issue. There's now enough evidence to say we can just get rid of this as a concern. That makes me agnostic. <laughs> nice. <laughs> no, I think these are excellent recommendations. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. The evidence was extraordinary. <laughs> All right. Evan, do you have a quote for us this week? Wait, I'm, I'm not done cracking up yet at those wonderful <laughs> jokes. All right. I do have a at quote. The yolk, it's, got it, the yolk <laughs> and it's something I read earlier today. And I, it, this one, it, I don't know, it just stood out for me. I, I loved how it was phrased and was wryly stated. If you think something is breaking the laws of physics, then there is likely an error in perception. You know, which, which seems like just such a... Uh, obvious sort of statement, but at the same time, when we were talking certainly about earlier in the show about the UFO story and how the people think that, you know, oh, new laws of physics are being broken because these things are moving in inconceivable ways. I mean, that's it. You have, like Bob said, you have to stop. That's it. Stop all everything. Go back to square one. You are so wrong. It's not even funny. There's no, there's such an infinitesimal chance that breaking the laws of physics is occurring in whatever you're observing. But it happens often, more often than we would like to see in the world of uh, skeptical analysis. And Steve, that one is you. Stephen Novella wrote that in his blog post about this. It's very ass kissy. No. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was rye. I mean, it was it meant to be rye? Sure, always. <laughs> oh, wait. 
All right, guys. This is the end of our of our year. This is you know, the last regular episode oh of the year. Yeah, it was. A, it was, this was a hard year for a lot of reasons. It was like hard, our- but it was exciting, and it was fun. And we're going to talk about all of it on next week's wrap up episode, which we're recording live in two days from now. But that'll be yesterday when the show goes up. But um, but you'll get to listen to it next week, and then we'll be back at the first of the year with our uh, t- first episode of 2018. Those episodes are always fun too. We look we look at predictions and see how they did. All right, guys. Well, thank you all for joining me this week. Thanks, Doc. Thank you. Sure it's day. our pleasure, Steve. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible. Uh-huh.